Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, this is Power Card, aka Project Pat, and you're listening to the Baltimore Beatdown Podcast, the best Ravens podcast on the planet. That's pretty incredible. In fact, it's La Marvelous. Thank you guys. All right, we're back. It is a Baltimore Beatdown podcast. Had a little bit of a false start there for anyone watching on Twitter, YouTube, but it is Jake and Spencer here. Uh, we're all in for week one, bud. Despite our technical difficulties, we're just going to keep this thing rolling. We are back, 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 back. We're good to go. And yeah, we'll keep it going. Yes, we sure will. So what were we talking about there? We were talking about the week one game coming up tonight for Thursday Night Football. It is Texans. It is Chiefs. It's going to be a fun one. Like we touched on, very high scoring. Two young quarterbacks who just got absolutely paid. And, uh, you know, we don't have to rehash it too much. But uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I think that the Chiefs are stacked. They're ready, good to go. And that the Texans are probably a little bit lacking. They had a lot of turnover, feels like. Feels like they are in a weird position with Bill O'Brien, who feels like he is on a very strange hot seat potentially with too much power and not delegating enough of his responsibilities, making some weird decisions, acquiring you know the oft-injured Brandon Cooks, the oft-injured and... Uh, probably almost guaranteed to be overpaid David Johnson unless he goes for 2,000 yards and 15 touchdowns this year, uh, total scrimmage yards. So feels like the Chiefs are probably going to have get off to a hot start. I feel like the Texans figure things out and keep pace a little bit just because Deshaun Watson is such a high-level player and have a plethora of receiving options still uh, with Fuller as well as uh, Stills. And I can't even recall the rest of the receivers off the top of my head right now, but they've got some options there still. And I think Watson will be able to keep pace a little bit. The Chiefs probably will have a two-score lead at some point in the fourth quarter. And I see the Texans kind of scoring towards the end of the game to make it a one-score game. Uh, kind of similar to what the Ravens did in Kansas City last year. But in the end, the Chiefs are in control most of the time and comfortably win. Yeah, like I was saying, I think a little bit of sloppy defense. Uh, you know, high-powered offense not going to be as affected by that kind of stuff. Do you, have the, <laughs> do you have the Periscope or something on? Oh, yeah, I did somehow jumped on. Sorry. I don't it's know good. What's going on. This is Podception right now. There we go. Yep, there we go. Podception, but we're back. Yeah, we. Oh, we never went anywhere. But yeah, like I was saying, I think uh, more high powered offense. I think the defenses are going to suffer a little bit. But uh, I, I think we've been saying for a while now, I think Bill O'Brien is 
a much better head coach than he is, you know, general manager. And I think he gets crapped on a little bit uh, in both capacities where I think he would probably be fine if he would just step away from that general management capacity. But regardless, I think it's going to be a fun game. A little David Johnson hot tip. I think he should probably hammer hammer him in fantasy. I think uh, old Billy Obi is going to want to look good for this trade. So he's going to be feeding the ball to David Johnson. Yeah, it feels like they might use him in the slot out wide, and that's how he had that mega successful season a few years ago where he did almost, he might have hit 2,000 scrimmage yards somewhere around there and did have like 18 touchdowns and won me a fantasy league. So if they use him the right way, they split him out wide, they put him in the slot, they motion him, get him the ball and manufactured touches in space, that could be a very good thing. The Texans do run a lot of jet sweep concepts and a lot of those play action jet sweeps and throwing the ball off to the flats on the jet sweep motion, things like that. Uh, Deshaun Watson's pretty good with those. His athletic ability allows him to buy some time and make the right decision there. So uh, I think he would be really good in that kind of role. Duke Johnson as well, another guy that can play in the slot or be in the backfield and do some various things there. So I'm interested to see how they deploy those guys. Plus Will Fuller uh, feels like, you know, I don't know what their tight end situation is like. I haven't checked on the Texans roster a ton. I know that I can't, is it still Fells or uh, whoever the hell they had? I can't remember, but feels like they could really use like a big, tall, reliable target for Deshaun Watson. I feel like that's kind of a missing link in this offense. Their offensive line was a little bit better last year. Uh, Their cornerbacks, I feel like, are not in the best spot right now as well. I feel like I'm kind of wary of their defensive depth. I'm not super high on them this season, but we'll see what the Texans can do. Yeah, we certainly will. Uh, It's going to be a fun one tonight, like we mentioned, so not to belabor that. Moving on into the first piece of of news that we were just touching on before we crashed out there. Jadavian Clowney signing with the Tennessee Titans on a one-year deal had interest in coming to the Ravens, but they were reportedly lukewarm. Yeah, it feels like they've sniffed around all those situations, and it feels inevitable that they're going to make some sort of move, but it has to be the right player at the right price. And it feels like it'll probably be someone on a rookie contract that's a rental if the Ravens are sitting, you know, six and one, five and two, you know, four and oh, something like that. And and there's a team that just flat out is not getting it done. Maybe it's a player like a Miles Jack or something, uh, but a player that's just not getting it done by any means. Uh, Miles Jack does have a really expensive contract, so they can't afford that. But something like that, or, you know, the Jags or maybe the DC football team or uh, something like that. So I feel like they sniffed around in Gawkway. Our boy Barstool Banks said that they were, you know, pretty involved in that and feels like you know, now it's kind of come out that Earl Thomas was being shopped around and there was that report that, you know, the Ravens were potentially offering a pro bowl player. A team was offering a pro bowl player. And it feels like the moves were just a little bit too expensive, a little bit too risky in terms of jeopardizing things in the future. But again, I think DaCosta will keep reaching around. He poked around DeAndre Hopkins and eventually he's going to, you know, strike while the iron's hot and find a team that is tanking, doing very poorly, that just wants a pick doesn't care, doesn't plan on retaining a player, not terribly interested in them during a rebuild, uh, maybe a sub-premier position, so not like, you know, outside of like cornerback, left tackle, quarterback, obviously they don't need one, uh, you know, receiver, those kinds of positions. So maybe a safety linebacker, guard, something like that, and maybe we see it down the road. But yeah, Clowney, you know, they, they tried to make it work at the right price by kind of getting the Jags to foot the bill on about $5 million of a signing bonus so that they could – Uh, swing over a second round pick and the NFL doesn't allow that in certain circumstances. The Texans shipped Brock Osweiler off to Cleveland on that huge contract where the Browns just offloaded it and cut his ass. 
And so it feels like if the NFL, the NFL will let you do a sign and trade based on the precedent, I guess, if you're dumping a salary so that a player can kind of be cut that is just in a horrible situation. But if it's going to be a good quality player that is going to give the team a competitive advantage by doing so, they then they don't allow it, which is kind of weird. But I guess they just don't feel like opening the can of worms to that because then teams will just start going bonkers doing that and saving money. And it might, you know, end up swaying competitive balances and making things really weird. But if any team can do it at any time, I don't see how that really, you know, sways a competitive balance. But it, it could definitely just open up a can of worms and teams trying to find more loopholes in that uh, same region. So interesting stuff. Weird that they didn't allow it, but I kind of see why. And yeah, I think the Ravens will make a move eventually before this trade deadline. Yeah, I think that's sort of a don't hate the player, hate the game type thing, because I, I absolutely loved that Osweiler move when the Browns made it. It was like an NBA sort of salary dump type deal. I think we should see more of that, uh, depending on how many of these quarterback contracts that are just getting handed out like candy at this point wind up not working out in the vein that the, it did not with Osweiler for the Texans. But yeah, as far as Clowney goes, man, I wasn't surprised to see him want to come to Baltimore you know, Super Bowl contender, stable organization, very weird start to his career on his side of things where he probably just wants to settle down at this point and start getting consistent big paychecks coming in year over year. But I mean, the Ravens can't really can't afford that right now. And if he wants something other than a one year deal where he's just jumping place to place, I mean, obviously he didn't get that with the Titans, but the Ravens weren't going to be able to give it to him either. So sort of my uh, short analysis on it was uh, right place, wrong time. Shout out to Dr. John. Exactly. So at this point, yeah, Clowney's on the Titans. The Ravens will probably keep their ear to the to the ground, and Eric DaCosta will Sakajawea his way into Saka Saka Gateway at some point. Huh? Saka Saka Gateway? Oh, you're Sakajawea. <laughs> Night at the museum. Uh, yeah, that Saka, that one. What a that one took movie. me by surprise the first time I heard it. Listen, I. All things, um, all things night at the museum. I'm, I'm certainly here for. So be prepared. If, if you team me up like that again, I'm just going to be mashing it out of the park. Exactly, and a great. I love kids movies like that that have the adult humor in them that kind of is like subliminal, subliminal or goes over the kids' heads a bit. And that's why Night at the Museum is such a great movie. Yeah, it's a very maybe the most stiller movie possible. Exactly. Him just, oh, 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 oh. What's, what's going on here? eyes all wide. Yeah, just the, the ears just Frazzle. absolutely popping. Yeah. Love Ben Stiller. Exactly. But yeah, let's uh, let's keep this train rolling. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Uh, just I completely just laid some dynamite down and just blew it off the rails and started pilfering all the money that was in the, uh, the, the train cabins there. But yeah, getting it back onto the rails. Ravens had their final cutdowns over the weekend. And uh, maybe the most sad thing that we saw from that is the end of the 16-year streak of rostering an undrafted rookie uh, that finally ends with them uh, making some interesting move this year, moves this year. Some of the notable ones included the same three QBs again this year, so that means Tyler Huntley gets cut. He is going to the practice squad. They opted to go with two tight ends, which is probably the first time they've done that for a while, though they did work out Crockett Gilmore, a familiar face the other day. Uh, waived third-year receiver Jaleel Scott, RIP in peace, him signing with the Jets practice squad today, I think. Uh, and they opted to go with many as many inside linebackers as cornerbacks. So you got Patrick Queen starting, Malik Harrison, LJ Fort, Chris Board, and Otaro Olaka, friend of the show, all backing him up. And then a few notable undrafted guys to clear waivers. I mentioned Tyler Huntley and Nigel Warrior, both going to wind up on the practice squad. So an interesting cut-down day in Baltimore. 
Right, and John Harbaugh kind of predicted it as it went. He said that they didn't anticipate a lot of waiver claims following the initial cuts from the uh, 80 down to the 53 because there was no preseason. So guys like Tyler Colon Castillo that the Ravens ended up protecting for this week, teams are allowed to protect up to four practice squad players every week. I think they have to list new ones every week if I'm correct. I believe I am. And anyway, so they didn't think that there would be a lot of their guys getting, you know, picked up, scooped up off the waivers. So it ended up working out for them. They got to keep everyone that they wanted to. No one made any waiver claims on any cut Ravens. They end up having Jaleel Scott on the short end of the stick. He goes up to the Jets as Joe Douglas just can't get enough, man. Just can't get enough. I guess he just likes the work ethic or the, you know, study habits and environment in Baltimore and wants to try and get as much of that as possible so that it maybe it kind of permeates into the Jets locker room if you have enough of them. Uh, I'm not sure if they're doing that. There might be other teams they're doing that with that we're just not paying attention to, too. So maybe that's kind of his little strategy to take the guys that don't end up making the cut from more stable organizations and see if they can rub off on the locker room there. But anyway, yeah, they end up keeping all those linebackers. Uh, I'm not calling the undrafted streak over yet because of this weird COVID year. If the Ravens have a guy from the practice squad, maybe Colon Castillo end up on the game day roster. If they make the game day roster, then I'm, I'm continuing the streak myself and you can't tell me otherwise, but it was interesting to see. And it feels like they navigated it really well. And the five linebackers, I mean, Otara Alaka was really great in preseason last year. They end up stashing him on the IR all year. He seems like a good thumper downhill to kind of support Malik Harrison in that role. And then, of course, Chris Board, who's made heavy contributions on special teams. Last year in training camp, Chris Board was tearing it up. He was doing a really great job. Ended up getting a really bad concussion towards the end of preseason in the last preseason game or two. can't recall which one. And then had a kind of funky start to the year. Seems like he was a little out of place after that. I know from personal experience, a concussion really mess you up for a couple months. Uh, some of those heavier ones with migraines and things, and you just feel a little wonky for a while. Eventually, I was able to at least come out of it, but uh, those things can can linger. So hopefully Chris Board's able to make a nice impact. Maybe he sees the field a bit. And yeah, that linebacker room is looking pretty hardy as of now. Some younger guys that all have opportunities to really prove themselves and earn snaps. If they play well in games and play well in special teams, they'll be safe and uh, find a spot on the team this year. So the confidence that I have in the linebacker room is still in question a bit, which is funny because last year I felt very certain about Peanut and Kenny Young kind of manning those two roles. And boy, oh boy, did that not turn out well. So interested to see. We actually had uh, Wink Martindale. The coaches were on conference today. The coordinators were on conference. And he was saying, he, Wink Martindale was saying he expects Patrick Queen to get really uh, swung at by the Browns. He thinks they're going to take some shots at him, probably to Sean Elliott as well. So it's going to be sink or swim fast as Patrick Queen's probably going to have to walk into the fan, so to speak, and see what they can do. But yeah, overall cuts wise, great job by the Ravens retaining all the guys they wanted to. They navigated this circumstance very well, in my opinion, as they just knew that no one was going to claim guys that didn't have any tape out. Yeah, which is kind of what's the interesting part about having no preseason. You got to think that if a guy like Huntley went in there and kind of tore it up a little bit, at least for preseason standards, or if a guy like Warrior was showing out in preseason the way that he was in practice, You'd think maybe they get picked up to go to another practice squad or maybe another roster, depending on what teams are trying to do. But ultimately, maybe that wound up working in their favor with some of these guys winding up on the practice squad and with practice squads in general just being really weird this year where Josh McCown, for example, is going to be living in Texas on the Eagles practice squad ready to go uh, in case COVID should strike them in a strange way. 
Same thing going on with Brandon Carr there uh, in Dallas, an old Ravens friend who people were maybe looking at as a guy who could have come back here to step in uh, to the secondary to not necessarily replace Earl Thomas, but provide a little bit of supplemental depth there. Depth there not going to happen as he is signing with Dallas' practice squad. So uh, a little bit of a weird spot to be in, but uh, we certainly expected it. And uh, cut downs have now come and gone. And uh, it was very, very stock, which is to be expected, I guess. Yeah, it made sense. They didn't make any risky moves. They didn't make any big splash. And it makes sense that, you know, talking back to the Clowney point and then thinking how they approach this preseason situation, non-preseason situation, training camp situation, they're going to test the waters first. It feels the guys they have, they trust their off-season evaluation process, the guys they brought in. And again, in the second year, we'll see if there is a huge shortcoming of this Ravens team and it feels like it might come across the offensive line, the linebacker room, or the DB's room in terms of safety, then Eric DaCosta is just going to make something happen and try and patch it up as quickly as possible without breaking the bank. And that's what he did last year. It worked out so well. So he's going to try and return to that well. And does that mean it will work this time? I'm not sure. It might be more difficult to do something like that in this COVID situation that the league is in and, and the way that things have turned out. So might not be as reliable this year to try that sort of see and then fix it later approach, but it worked last year. So why not try it again? I suppose is the the logic there, but hopefully they don't get to that point. Hopefully they're just a rock star team and they're something. And that's the, that's the goal. Yeah, certainly. So moving on from that, we wanted to go ahead and take a look ahead at the schedule, do a little bit of a season preview as we head into week one here. So it definitely snuck up on us. It at least snuck up on me that, at the start of this week, I was like, wait a minute, it's week one. Did you have the same feeling? Yeah, uh, I've been waiting for it for a long, 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 long time. I've been looking at the week one matchups for a couple weeks, but still, it just doesn't matter. It gives you a little, little extra juice, a little pip, pip in your step when week one rolls around and you know we get this Thursday night football. And I know I'm just going to get really nervous. I get like a little sick in my stomach like Saturday night, Sunday morning. Usually can't sleep because I get so damn excited and it's just knowing that all the football coverage is going to come on in the morning. Uh, so I don't have to work with SIS this Sunday morning, but I will be working uh, during and through the Ravens game. Bit, so I'll kind of be a little bit back and forth, but I still get that nervous feeling and it happens every year and before big games too sometimes, but it's, it's excitement, it's jitters. It's all that. And just knowing that we have football for the next couple of months, hopefully if the teams all are able to continue navigating the COVID situation successfully, it will be, awesome and that's what we need we need football right now in america yeah we certainly do uh things are definitely popping off a little bit here as the year is sort of weirdly coming to a close entering september now got four months of football in front of us so that's going to be very nice little distraction from all the stuff that has gone on this year um but yeah i mean in that sense with everything that it has been going on in 2020 it definitely snuck up on me uh i'm kind of already getting that nervous feeling in my stomach that you mentioned i'm just kind of that way i'm a little bit of an anxious fan but uh you know you got week one coming up on sunday nice little palatable uh home game against the browns that we're going to be touching on but as far as the entirety of the season goes wanted to touch on a little bit of a record prediction because we really haven't done anything like that quite yet uh i know you were going off on it a little bit on twitter uh today yesterday whatever uh, I've been looking at it a little bit as well. What is your ultimate record prediction here for the Ravens? So I'm going 12 and four. I've thought about this one and and for whatever reason, just like without looking at the schedule, my gut tells me like 11 and five and maybe even 10 and six. 
feel like there is just a lot of uncertainty this season. There might be some surprising teams. And that's the thing about doing these like full year record predictions. Injuries happen, all that stuff. But uh, on paper, I have them 12 and four. The loss is coming against the Chiefs because I just think fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I had them winning both of those games in Kansas City. And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it a third time, as J. Cole says. Essentially, I'm gonna unload the chopper if the if I pick the Ravens and they uh, lost again, I would feel very foolish. So until proven otherwise, I think the Chiefs can handle the Ravens. So that's the first loss I have them taking. I have them splitting with Pittsburgh and Cleveland. I have them winning in Week One against Cleveland and then uh, losing the later one. I think the Browns will be able to get hot under Stefanski, who will have them much more disciplined and functioning better and Cleveland might uh, kind of fall behind the eight ball at first and then get things really going after a couple weeks of live action so I had the Browns beating them in a more meaningful game for Cleveland kind of the opposite of what happened last year essentially then I have them losing to Pittsburgh in Baltimore and then ruining Thanksgiving uh, in Pittsburgh and finally I took a one that I feel like gets a little bit of flack which is them losing in Indy I'm just very high on Indy who I have as a playoff team as well so if Phillip Rivers gives them above average quarterback play, in my opinion, they have a great offensive line. They got DeForest Buckner. They have some really exciting front seven pieces. Malik Harrison, their DBs have held up relatively well in that scheme. And I think they have a lot of weapons with Jonathan Taylor, who I have been watching a lot of for SIS. I was doing some training stuff and they had us use a couple of Wisconsin games and he made so many people miss at the line of scrimmage. It is under, it's underrated how elusive he is and how great he is at cutting. Um, so not to go on too much of a Colts tangent there, but I just think the Colts have a lot of potential. They can get above average quarterback play. And so I had them losing there, and those are the four losses. I think this is the year that the Ravens finally win a playoff game, but I am not prepared to have them you know, go to the Super Bowl or win the Super Bowl. So I ended up having Pittsburgh, I think. Uh, it was like Pittsburgh in the wild card the Raiders in the wild card, the Colts win their division, the Titans in the wild card, and then the Chiefs and the Bills. I'm very big on the Bills this year. I think if Josh Allen's just a little bit more accurate deep, they can hit on some Stephon Diggs stuff. And Bills were a really good team last year. And with the Patriots missing Dante Hightower and Patrick Chung, uh, as well as a couple other guys opting out there, it feels like TP really high on them, but that feels like too much to overcome. The loss of Brady, plus all those opt-outs, that's a really tough situation. And I think they're still a competitive team that can win on every, any given Sunday. But I ended up having KC going to the Super Bowl, beating the Ravens in the AFC Championship. Because as I said, I am not picking Ravens to beat the Chiefs until I see it happen. So that is my opinion on that side. And then I had the Cardinals coming out of the NFC uh, as the one seed, which worked out really strangely. I don't think that will actually happen, but when... I went through and did all 32 teams and picked game by game. They ended up as the one seed. I think they're a 9-7, and 10-6, 11-5 football team this year, and the other teams were just a mess, kind of. The NFC South is super tough to predict, but I ended up having the Saints come out against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. The Saints have had such heartbreak over the last six seasons, losing in those you know last-minute drives every single year. Like They didn't just get blown out one game, and the Saints could be like, all right, they shit the bed. Like At least Ravens fans, like the Ravens lost – emphatically so we're not like ah oh, it's not that heartbreak it's just disappointing we can't turn instead. an entire off season into just us bitching about like x thing and then that ruins part of the next season for every other team exactly exactly that yeah that's dreadful that but at the same time that has happened to them year after year so you can't blame them for no listen i get it i i love the saints i mean i'm you know kind of from there a little you bit got that so, bio blood yeah they're sort of my second team a little bit but let's calm down just a tad you know what i mean 
yeah, last year it felt like they were just like, all right, shit, nothing, nothing we can do there. They're used to it. So I think the Saints go all in. They're trying to go all in on Clowney. Let's see if they make another move similar to the Ravens because after this, Breeze is. Pr- I think this is probably Drew Breeze last year. If I had to guess, I'd be pretty surprised to see him play a- another season next year. But I wouldn't entirely rule it out. But I'm uh, kind of wishful thinking a little bit on the Saints. And I had the Packers winning the NFC North uh, by default, kind of. The Vikings, I was really high on, but then with Daniil Hunter injured and just kind of thinking about maybe if they can't generate a ton of pass rush, then Michael Pierce, he opts out. And the secondary not being the best, like if they get Neil Hunter back and he's fully go and they have Ngakwe, they end up being a 13 and three football team. But I had uh, 10 and six, I believe. And then the NFC South was just, I mean, insane to try and predict. The Panthers feel like a really crappy team because of uh, their youth on defense. They had a higher defensive draft of rookies. They didn't draft any offensive players. So it feels like they're going to be too young defensively in a COVID plagued season to implement what they wanted to do. I feel like their offense can be efficient. Uh, nice little dink and dunk offense that has big play after the catch kind of guys with McCaffrey and Moore and Samuel and Anton, but Bridgewater not known for the deep ball. So I see a lot of quick passing, a lot of McCaffrey usage. Obviously I had like three and 13 or four and 12, somewhere along there, but the bucks are a real wrench to try and predict this year. I feel like with Brady and everything. So I uh, ended up having the bucks win the division at 11 and five tied with the saints at 11 and five. Then I had the Falcons just missing the playoffs at nine and seven, I believe. And I think the Falcons could be a good team this year. Yeah. I'm actually kind of the same way on the Falcons. As far as the NFC, I believe I had it, uh, saints one Vikings two. What else did I have? I had Niners three, I believe. And then NFC East, I, I had the Cowboys. So, yeah, and then I the wild card I didn't take a look at, but as far as AFC goes, I had Chiefs one, Ravens I had two, but I have them at eleven and five, so it's kind of a strange number two seed there a little bit. I had Bills as the third seed, fourth I had Colts, so I'm kind of with you there on the Colts. As far as the Ravens goes, their record so eleven and five. I'm with you, and then I have them splitting with the Chiefs and the Steel or the uh, the Browns and the Steelers winning at home in each of them, losing away in each of them, losing to the Chiefs in week three. I'm with you on that. You got to prove it to me uh, before you actually, you know, go out and do it. Losing one to the Colts. So that is four right there. And then I had them losing to the Patriots, I believe. Hmm. I think, or wait, is that, yeah, that's away, right? In Foxborough. So yeah, I had them losing that one to have an 11 and five record. I think they finish out uh, three, and zero down that pretty easy stretch. So they're going to be sitting at like eight and five, uh, maybe questioning a little bit, not necessarily, but it's going to be different than it was last year where by that point they're just steamrolling teams. I have them finishing out win over Jacksonville Giants and Bengals to get to 11 and five in that number two seed. Yeah, I think I had number three. I actually had, I think I had the bills as the one seed. They have a really easy schedule and then a weak division for the most part, unless the Patriots end up somehow being a juggernaut despite all those losses and turnover. Uh, I think I had the Chiefs two, Ravens three, and Colts four, somewhere along those right lines. So the Ravens get a couple of home playoff games then had to go into Kansas City in my scenario. And uh, feels like this is the year they at least win, win a playoff game, and that would be a major step forward. We brought it up in the Slack chat. If this season results in the Ravens not winning a playoff game, where does that leave, you know, John Harbaugh 
as it feels like Roman is, if the Ravens get a high seed again, feels like there is no way in hell that Greg Roman is not a head coach somewhere else next year and potentially Wink Martindale as well. Uh, unless, you know, obviously I just might not want to do that, which is a dream scenario, but it feels foolish to think that they wouldn't if they're offered a really good job that they've kind of coveted. So if they lose a game, where does that leave John Harbaugh? And it, it feels like all, a little, his seat gets a little warm, like just a tiny bit warm. I don't think that they let him go after this because you, how can you, if the Ravens win the division three straight years, you can't cut somebody, it feels like, or, you know, part ways of the head coach. But again, the following season, if there's no playoff success, if it's two more years of that, I feel like Harbaugh will be out. And that's, you know, a far cry away from where we are today, standing here. For all we know, the Ravens don't even make the playoffs this year. Who knows? Who knows what can happen injury wise, all those kinds of things. So uh, it's a difficult situation. And I mean, last year, you know, Mike Tomlin ended up, being you know considered for coach of the year after Ben Roethlisberger goes down, the Steelers didn't even make the playoffs. So situations like that can happen, but uh, it, it feels if they don't win a playoff game this year without you know overwhelming circumstances that prevent them from maybe reaching the postseason or things like that, then kind of puts the Ravens in a weird spot of where what do you want to do? And I feel like Bashadi loves that continuity aspect. He's spoken about how he likes to model the Ravens after the Steelers, who have only had four head coaches in some uh, 70 odd years. So it feels like they're not going to do that route exactly, but uh, it's just a funky situation. If the season ends in something other than a, at least one playoff win. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly weird. I just, I couldn't, couldn't really see that happening, especially if they do make the playoffs. Uh, It just like, my question is where is the basis of questioning coming from? Is it okay? Can this guy get it done? Well, yeah, he can get it done. Like he did it. So, I mean, we're talking about a coach that's already won a Super Bowl, you know, five straight years of playoffs. But not only that, then the pretty much five years of mediocrity and irrelevance after that, Bishotti still didn't want to move on. So I think if your biggest right. problem is three straight years of making the playoffs and not getting it done, I just don't really think the questions are even going to arise to your point. Uh, like you said, he wouldn't necessarily be fired this year, but maybe the next. I don't even think the line of questioning would start until like next year. I think Bishotti values that continuity so much. And uh, I'm not even saying it's a question of whether should, would, or, you know, whatever the situation is. I just think knowing Bashadi, I think he loves Harbaugh, wants to hang on to him as much as possible. And uh, he doesn't want to get rid of him until his hand is truly, truly forced. And he pretty much at this point has so much stuff to point to, including the Super Bowl win, including the fact that he kind of got jobbed a little bit having to hang on to Flacco on the contract, including the fact that he transitioned from Flacco to Lamar as smoothly as any head coach is probably done with any QB transition. And then if it were three straight years of playoffs, I just, I really couldn't see it happening, but it's an interesting dilemma. Right. It just starts to, people are going to start to ask questions and especially, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know. It's, it's kind of difficult because the Ravens have been so visibly flat entering the postseason and clearly have such a talented roster. And while Harbaugh is responsible for a lot of that, it, if, the Ravens come out flat again, lose at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the football again, and you know get ran on, can't run the ball, can't stop the run, not getting pressure on the quarterback, getting pressured when they're on offense. It falls onto coaching eventually, and and unfortunately, I feel like Harbaugh has to take the blame there. And you're right, the blame might not be heavy enough, and it's a good problem. You know, is our coach? going to get us to the Super Bowl after winning the division three years in a row and falling short. That's more of a good problem to have than a bad one, but it just 
can cause a lot of frustration in a coach that's been with the Ravens for a while. So just a weird circumstance that's possible this season if they do uh, have history repeat itself over the last two years and end up getting in there. But again, I don't feel that's the case. I agree with you. It feels like this team now is experienced instead of just young. They're both young and experienced. So they have had, you know, Ronnie Stanley, a guy who's the premier left tackle, he's had two playoff games under his belt now. You know, his, his feet are wet. Uh, Orlando Brown as well. And Mark Andrews had a couple experience. All these guys, Marlon Humphrey, Lamar, obviously, a lot of those guys. So it feels like they have what it takes and have the experience, the skin in the game that I always love to say is there. They've they've suffered. And it feels like the Ravens, in order to you know win that Super Bowl back in the 2012 season, had to suffer first. They had to fall short in New England. They had to you know get beat by Pittsburgh a couple times in the playoffs. They had to really work and strive and keep at it year after year for a few years there for, you know, those five years of under Harbaugh until they got that Super Bowl. And like you said, it's such a good point that the the mediocrity they fell into and Harbaugh bringing them out of that to the point they reached last year shows that he's not stale. Like a lot of people questioned, he's not you know, an old dog in the game. He stayed innovative, stayed at the top of the game. They bring in analytics guys. I have a, you know, renowned analytics team as well. Now their offense is, you know, at the forefront of what football is doing with the RPOs and things like that. So he has stayed fresh despite, you know, kind of rumors that he was getting stale. A lot of that might've had to do with the offensive situation and some things. And this year's a big year for the Ravens in terms of not really. And and this was brought up the other day to me, I believe on Twitter, but bringing in Clayus Campbell, bringing in Derek Wolf, those are not the, the veterans that they bring in that people have complained about. Those guys aren't Michael Crabtree, you know, um, they're not those kind of guys. Clayus Campbell is an elite defender still. Top, you know, 20 defender, 30 defender in the entire NFL. And Derek Wolf is only 30 and has been successful. And it feels like they went, they opted with youth this year in a lot of situations, especially that receiver room. They didn't panic. They were like, all right, we're going to see if if what we drafted and brought in pays off. Um, they're, they are relying on these younger-ish guys and these younger guys to be what they expected them to be when they acquired them. So they haven't tried to use those classic aging veteran band-aids of that mediocre run that they went on. Kind of. So it feels like this is an important year for the Ravens in terms of uh, trusting their evaluation process in the draft and, and with rookies and younger players, as opposed to those classic Ravens band-aids. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Listen, and not to rag on Ozzy, but he had a couple rough years there where he misjudged what he had, particularly at receiver and on offense. And it really cost them. And it cost Harbaugh, I think. That's part of why they fell into that mediocrity. There were some games maybe where Harbs didn't get them up for it, and he, I think, readily admitted to that, that he just kind of didn't have them ready for some of the mediocre teams that they dropped games against during that run. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, you look at what happened in 2018. They had a decently talented roster. They go 10-6, and six, win the division, make the playoffs. You look at this past year, they had a pretty damn talented roster, 14-2, and two, win the division, you know, losing the playoffs again. But... Ultimately, to your point, like the questions are definitely going to be asked. Like they're going to be asked if he doesn't win a playoff game. It's just a process versus results type thing where the Ravens are process based, media is reactionary. Obviously, they're going to be, you know, looking at the results, which is understandable. That's just what the media does. And uh, I think the hot seat, as it were, is going to exist in the minds of the media, but not in the minds of Harbaugh. Should nothing happen in the playoffs yet again this season? And ultimately, for a guy like him, that's unfortunately just always going to be the case because he does not really bring, if you think about it, he doesn't bring much of a tangible value in the eyes of people in the media specifically. He doesn't coordinate the offense. He doesn't coordinate the defense. He's a special teams guy. He's Ray Ra motivator, CEO type. 
And uh, as much as that has value within a building, it doesn't have much value outside of a building where somebody looks at them and says, well, what does this guy actually do? Because you got Greg Roman there doing a great job with the offense. You got Wink Martindale doing an equally good, good job with the defense. And then here's this guy just kind of in the middle. What does he do? Well, he does a ton of things that you don't see outside of the building as a media member, but they're not less valuable all the same. But Greg Roman and Wink Martindale in their position after they kind of got backlogged after they were unsuccessful. Not even Greg Roman wasn't even unsuccessful, but you know where I'm going with it. Right, right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that's another good point that you look at a guy like Wink Martindale, who had a very rough stint as a defensive coordinator for just the one time that he got a crack at it in Denver. Uh, not the popular hire at the time to promote the guy from in-house after a very high-profile guy left that position before him. And then Greg Roman, I mean, he had had a little bit of a fall from grace there in Buffalo. I mean, those offenses weren't looking especially pretty towards the end of his tenure. So a guy whose stock was very much on the downslide. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's another thing that he did well was build a staff around him, not be intimidated by the fact that they're two smart, established football minds. And uh, they're both kind of doing their thing, and he's doing his uh, like I said, in a way that's not going to get a ton of glory or attention from the media all the time, but uh, is important all the same. Exactly. And, the you know, we talk about the executive type coaches versus the X's and O's coaches, and there's examples of good ones and bad ones all across the board. And that's such a valuable thing, picking the right guys to delegate power to, kind of like the president of the United States, you know, picking the right cabinet, putting surrounding yourself with successful people that are, are the right person for the job, not taking too many risks in that way, uh, making sure that you have a safe, consistent, you know, biz, a successful business model, essentially, that's sustainable with selecting coaches and decisions that you make. And, uh, you know, some of those big decisions, I mean, sticking with Lamar Jackson as a rookie who was errant, but electric at the same time was a tough decision. And the Ravens from, I mean, he, maybe he got fixed if he doesn't stick with, let's say that they don't stick with Lamar Jackson. Joe Flacco comes back in. The Ravens end up eight and eight missing the postseason. Maybe John, John Harbaugh is not the coach of the Baltimore Ravens last year or at this point, if he didn't make that tough decision. And at the end of the day, that boiled down to him. He was, so often, I mean, not to interrupt you too much there, but he was on his way out. Like he was gone. Like it, it had been reported that it was already, they had mutually agreed to part ways He's just going to bring Jackson in, and they're just going to see it through to the end. They lose one game after that happens, and he saved his job, goes 14-2 and two the next year. I mean, I think that speaks to kind of the fortitude that you're dealing with with this guy, where we talk about, like, you know, he's a little corny sometimes, and he has all these weird, like, sayings, and he's just got this great dad energy that uh, maybe doesn't, you know, there's not the cool factor of somebody like a Sean McVay, and you don't really have the same kind of quirk and offensive genius that you do with somebody like Andy Reid, but there's just an it factor, I think, with John Harbaugh that... As much as, you know, people kind of want to rag on him and, you know, like Voss is big on talking about how culture is really not as important as he makes it out to be. Yeah, maybe. But like at the same time, I think there is a lot of inherent value that is just not easy to, you know, discern. Couldn't disagree with Voss more on that one. Yeah, same. It's culture. The culture is the same thing as having a sustainable business model, in my opinion. Culture is part of that. That's what the word culture means in relevance to football. And uh, I Generally disagree with that, but like you said, he's not exciting in that way, but we also don't. So this is what I was thinking of. Let's say that that, you know, doomsday type scenario in a way, well, it's not maybe the worst to win the division still, you know, I'm calling it doomsday just because it would be really frustrating if the Ravens go one and done in the playoffs again. Uh, but we don't, we, as much as, as much time as you and I and everyone else spends trying to analyze why that might be at the end of the day, John Harbaugh isn't going to tell us why. It happened. Steve Bashotti's not going to say why it happened. 
Eric DaCosta is not going to tell us why it happened. They keep it in-house always. We didn't even know that Earl Thomas got fined somehow twice. They keep that shit in-house. And it feels like if that does happen, we won't know who is truly at blame because they are so tight-lipped unless there's an anomaly and someone isn't tight-lipped. And that would be an outlier. That doesn't happen in Baltimore often. So, you know, if that happens, the conversations will be had in-house between the executives, the head coach, and the owner. And who is at fault? We won't even really know. Um, you know, some people point the blame at Greg Roman for the debacle against the Titans and, you know, being unwilling to stick with the ground game when they were down by one score and things like that. And other people point fingers here and there and there, but they know who's at fault and they are not, are not going to blame anyone that is not part of that Baltimore Ravens culture. And that's why guys want to come there. They want to come to Baltimore because they know they're not going to get, you know, put on blast until unless they truly deserve it. Earl Thomas, we didn't know there was a problem with Earl Thomas. You know, some of the insiders had some rumblings and things like that, but we didn't know there was a problem until it exploded. But we didn't realize that explosion wasn't out of nowhere. It was a long time coming. It was, you know, basically inevitable almost. So, uh, yeah, but that's that's kind of all my thoughts on Harbaugh and things like that. Still love the hell out of the guy as a football coach. Think he does a great job preparing practice. He's very efficient, well organized, and those are the things that people don't understand. What is important for a head coach to do? He is the one who has to delegate all of the responsibilities first. Have a good system of being able to make sure that you know the people he's put in power, his coaches and, and assistant coaches, are doing their job. You have to be able to basically check up on them successfully and evaluate them properly during the season. Keep practice on schedule. Make decisions, big time decisions during the game, as well as you know the the huge decisions like do we stick with the rookie or go with the Super Bowl MVP, those kinds of things. And I feel like Harbaugh has a pretty good track record. While no one bats a thousand, it's impossible to. He has a pretty good track record at those big time decisions and uh, making the the paradoxical shift when he needed to to Jackson did potentially save his job. And Calvin Wooden comments on here. It's crazy that John Harbaugh was even considered on the hot seat in general. And I agree. He took some crappy, mediocre rosters and made them playoff contenders almost the entirety, they only played one meaningless football game uh, there when the, it was the 2000, it was after the Steelers Christmas game. What was that? 2016? 2016, yeah, when they went to go play the Bengals, Steve Smith's last game. Right. That was the only meaningless football game they played with a completely lackluster roster. So a lot of credit to Harbaugh for being able to keep them afloat during a rebuild. Uh, you know, build it. They did like a, a instead of a, you know, what the Jaguars are doing, having a fire sale, firing people, doing all this stuff. They kind of did like a one-third, three-year rebuild and remained competitive, and it kept fans in seats, and Harbaugh was able to weather that. And you use that word fortitude, and I really like that. Uh, I really like that one word to describe John Harbaugh. In one word, John Harbaugh has fortitude as a head coach, and I really like that. So it's a good way of putting it, and I feel like that uh, that sums up my thoughts on, on John Harbaugh going into the season. Yeah, just real quick on it, I mean – Ultimately, a lot of the stuff you touched on there is very good, and uh, fortitude, I think, is the right word. And this is about them getting more into the analytics game and that kind of stuff. I hate to kind of keep sounding like an analytics, like corporate slogan sounding board, but this is about being process-based versus results-based. The Ravens are a process-based organization. They don't look at results and say, okay, like this happened, so we have to do this. X happened, so we don't have to do Y, so we don't have to do Z. We go into Kansas City go for it on fourth down six times. It doesn't work. We're just done doing that because the result didn't work. No, we liked our process. We didn't win the game, but we feel like nine times out of 10 or eight times out of 10, seven times out of 10, maybe it works out in our favor. So we're going to stick to our process and that worked for them. 
John Harbaugh loses in the playoffs again, first time, we're going to stick to our process and eventually we think it's going to work. And that's how you get to a point where, say in 2017, you know, you look at a result that happened at the end of the season, a disappointing loss. You lose in a freezing, you know, cold game that you should have won. And you know, ultimately, you're just in a very bad spot. Let's say you win that game. You don't get Lamar Jackson. And if you lose the game and you, you know, you fire Harbaugh as a result of that, then you maybe don't get Lamar Jackson as well. And you don't get this turnaround. You don't get a team that, you know, wins 24 games over the course of two years. And, you know, they bow out in the playoffs. But ultimately, if you just stick to that process, I think ultimately you're going to get the result that you're seeking. So like I mentioned, not to keep harping on this and sounding like some sort of soundboard, but I think ultimately the Ravens are just going to trust the process. Trust the process. The old, uh, the old Sixers strategy, but yeah, I agree with all a lot of those points. And it, uh, Ben Rose chimes in painful Mark Tressman offenses, right? And that was an example of him maybe not putting the right person in the right position, but got rid of him and uh, could tell based on the process that was happening as well as the results in that situation. Yeah, but, not for nothing. Yeah, you're talking about an offense that is trying to feature Brashad Perryman as like a number two wide receiver. So uh, you know, Mark Tressman didn't love his offenses, but to be fair to the guy, another dude who did not necessarily benefit from Ozzy's decision-making near the end there. Absolutely. Great point. But yeah, let's get, uh, let's get into this Browns game. Absolutely. So Sunday, 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 1 PM Cleveland Browns coming into Baltimore, Baker Mayfield seeking a bounce back season under new head coach, Kevin Stefanski. You got offensive coordinator, Alex Van Pelt there under him. Brown's very talented on offense yet again, added a couple pieces along that offensive line. Uh, you got uh, Joe or, um, Jedrick Wills coming in at, I believe he's going to be playing left tackle. And then you got Conklin playing right tackle. Uh, you know, a couple additions, couple familiar faces that you're expecting a bounce back from. What are you expecting to see from Cleveland's offense this Sunday under Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt? Stefanski clearly being, you know, purposefully vague about who's going to be calling the plays. But for all intents and purposes, the offense that he was running with Minnesota there in Kirk Cousins last season. Uh, absolutely. I believe that Kevin Stefanski is the, like you said, it's a good example of the Browns subscribing to, as you describe, as you put it, the process-based decision-making as opposed to results. Uh, they hired Freddie Kitchens after the results of Freddie Kitchens, but they ignored the process. A guy who didn't have experience, who probably wasn't, uh, showing something that was going to be sustainable in his method, especially putting him at the head coach position. So at this point we end up seeing, Kevin Stefanski come in from Minnesota and Kevin Stefanski did an outstanding job last year. He had Gary Kubiak come in, who I believe is now the Vikings offensive coordinator, if I'm mistaken. I think he I think is. He, I think he took over the full reign of it. Uh, so Stefanski does a lot of things similar to what we saw from the Ravens offense. It'll be more relatable to Ravens fans. Uh, when Gary Kubiak had that outstanding 2014 season, led Joe Flacco to by far his best regular season and uh, off to a really great postseason start there. Just couldn't get it done in New England. And I, that one was not to blame on Joe Flacco by any means. He had a great game in New England that day. But uh, so the Browns ended up being a team that when they had Freddie Kitchens take over as play caller, uh, part of that felt like a great decision as maybe retaining him as offensive coordinator because Baker Mayfield, and it ended up being true last season and leading to the demise of Freddie Kitchens. Baker Mayfield thrives in play action heavier personnel aside from 11 personnel when he when the browns were in 11 personnel last year every single passing metric was significant there was a significant drop off there between 11 personnel three receivers one tight end obviously 
end, the 12 personnel, the 21, the 22. Uh, Baker does an outstanding job on play action. His play action metrics were all higher than his non-play action metrics. His boots, his outside of the pocket throwing was among the best in the NFL. Baker Mayfield has a laser and throws a beautiful deep ball. He's a very accurate deep passer. And the Browns simply didn't take enough of those, you know, play action set up, get Baker in space shots. And it feels like he does a poor job managing the pocket with his feet, uh, gets a little antsy and things that he's worked on. But uh, in that Oklahoma offense, his offensive line was so damn dominant that he didn't wasn't under pressure as much. So teams maybe didn't get the best read on that situation. But now going ahead and looking at what Stefanski does, because the Vikings last year in 2019 with Stefanski at the helm, they ran 11 personnel at the lowest rate of any team in the NFL. They were 32nd in usage of 11 personnel. So what does that say? Browns are probably going to not run as much 11 personnel. Then let's look at who they brought in on the offensive side of the football this year. You mentioned Jedrick Wills, who was a nasty son of a gun at Alabama. He was the right tackle for Alabama, but Tua Tagvoiloa is a lefty. So he is kind of the left tackle in that way. And obviously, you know, it's, it's works mechanically differently with the human body, you know, kick sliding with your feet and, and it's inverted. So it is different a little bit, um, but he is used to being the blindside protector and he was a damn good one. One of my favorite plays from Jedrick Wills last year, he depleted Marlon Davidson, who I also I've talked about on this podcast, had very strong opinion of him as a great player, put his ass in the dirt, put him on his back, really, really well. A mauler, a guy who has good technique and great physical ability. He reminds me of a better version of Cody Ford, the former Oklahoma right tackle who is now at Buffalo, played a little guard last year. The Ravens saw him. Uh, so an interesting pickup there. Then they go ahead and get Jack Conklin, who is, well, not maybe spectacular. He is consistent. He is a great run blocker. He is going to be a cog. And they now bookends. They Jedrick Wills is probably going to be a good pro. The thing is, though, let's think about how great Ronnie Stanley is and how technically sound he is, uh, how much of an athlete he is. Ronnie Stanley was not consistent as a rookie. Uh, it's really hard for rookie tackles, especially, because tackles usually are on an island more so, uh, to be consistent, to to win consistently, to make the right decisions. And they end up seeing a lot more looks from defenses throughout one game. And, and everybody says, you know, the rookies, the NFL comes at you fast, the play speed's different, yada, 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 all that cliche stuff. But it's true. So, you know, Wills is probably still an improvement potentially from Greg Robinson last year. Uh, and then Conklin is definitely going to be an improvement there. So you got to look at that line that has three pretty above average to good borderline elite uh, guys there and think that's a good five-man group. So that's going to present some problems, uh, not just for the Ravens, but for teams all year. I would imagine their offensive line is going to be among the top 10 in football this year especially if they run the ball more and use less 11 personnel that works in the favor of the offensive line always. So we look at that. We also look at Austin Hooper coming in. They end up having uh, drafting Harrison Bryant out of FAU, who's an athletic tight end uh, as well as retaining David Njoku who wanted to be trade out and the Browns refused. So what does that tell me? Tight end usage is going to be up. We're going to see a lot of two tight end sets, uh, maybe even some three tight end sets, probably a few of them this week. So when we go ahead and, and look at what the Browns are going to do on offense, it's going to be, heavier personnel, running the football, play action, and and getting Baker Mayfield in space. And last year, Kirk Cousins, who I think is, you know, I wouldn't call him an unathletic guy, but I think he's, you know, he, he was athletic enough to get in space, but I think Baker has a little bit more twitch. A little doesn't bit more quite, yeah, doesn't quite have the juice that Baker has. Exactly. So I think Baker's going to be able to hit those landmarks on some bootlegs and some rollouts a lot quicker and more effectively and be in a good position to throw. But that's kind of a... a 
I just talked myself into poor logic because Kirk Cousins was incredible on those boots and rollouts last year. So it really doesn't even matter. Kirk was great, great mechanics. Well, you talk about Gary Kubiak and the influence on Stefanski there. I mean, you look at a guy like Joe Flacco, who was regularly kind of dunked on for having zero athletic ability. I think that was a little overstated at the time, but he got into that Gary Kubiak offense. He was moving around a little bit, doing those rollouts, that play action stuff. I think you're going to be seeing a lot of that from the Browns this Sunday. and You're going to be impressed with Baker Mayfield's athleticism. Absolutely. So Baker, yeah, he has that juice. He's got that little bit of dog in him too. He can he can scrap around and and he'll lower his shoulder occasionally and not look like a you know quarterback that shouldn't have lowered his shoulder. So I think that Baker is going to be a lot more effective in this offense. Where I find, and this goes for both sides of the ball and special teams, you can lump in there as well. It's really hard. I'm interested to see, and I could be completely wrong here, but I feel like it's really hard to hire an entirely new coaching staff especially because this is the third coaching staff in the past three years for the Browns. Um, that's, that means new terminology. That means, you know, different adjustments based on the way you see things on the field. And it's hard in this COVID plagued off season where there was no mini camp and a weird training camp period. I feel like it's going to be hard for new head coaches and new coaches to effectively convey what they want done on the football field with no preseason games less time on the field, not having mini camp, not having the guys in the building until much later than usual. So it feels like it's likely that uh, those teams that don't have continuity coaching wise might struggle a little bit and that might be league wide. And that doesn't mean that all of them will. So maybe the Browns are just good to go. That's, you know, an X factor for me in this game is, is how well this offense can function without as much experience as typical. But Stefanski has been in the NFL for going on 20 years, I believe, somewhere around there. So he's not some, you know, college coach, young buck hire. He's a, a veteran coach that has been around the NFL, knows what works, what doesn't, uh, probably a lot better than some of these new hires that are not nearly as experienced as he is. On the defensive side of the ball, they uh, also brought in the 49ers defensive backs coach as their defensive coordinator, a very well-respected guy. That unit was great. But on the offensive side of the football, I feel like the it's just going to come down to how well the Browns are prepared to execute what Kevin Stefanski's implemented. And if they're ready to do so, this could be a tough game for the Ravens for sure. I think it will be a tough game. Yeah, for sure. Watching some of that Vikings tape, I've been doing that in the run up to today was watching a little bit of that saints playoff game that they played really liked what I saw from this offense, very run heavy, some inside zone stuff, a lot of stretches and tosses to the outside with uh, Dalvin cook and that other guy, 25. I don't have his name uh, on the Vikings. Madison. Okay. Yeah. So, Really, really interesting offense. I think you're going to see Hooper playing that uh, Kyle Rudolph role a little bit. Really interested to see what we get from Jarvis Landry in this game. Because if you look at Diggs uh, in that offense, it's a lot of the stuff where he's doing the motions going back and forth, whether they're giving it to him on a handoff, whether they're setting him up to run a wheel route or something like that, or they're setting it up to go the other way. He's going to be a part of that play action game as well as I think Odell is who uh, shout out to Odell, some interesting proclivities uh, for him that were disclosed recently. We don't have to get into that. Uh, and then I think looking at uh, Hooper and some of these guys that they're going to want to be taking advantage of, looking at Baker's next-gen stats. This was in my article for uh, this week called the Dossier that I'm going to be trying to do in every week about uh, the upcoming opponent, looking at Baker's next-gen stats, stats. Best throwing short to the right and intermediate and deep over the middle of the field. So I think that is going to mean a lot of heavy tight end usage, and I think it is going to be multiple tight ends. I think they were smart to hang on to Njoku because he's going to give them a lot of that stuff that, frankly, he had already been giving them in the five years that he had been there, uh, but excited about his role in this. And I think Hooper, as much as they maybe did overpay for him a little bit, I think he's going to excel in this offense and, at least from a production standpoint, pay them back nicely on that. 
Right. And and Hooper does get a huge contract, but it just shows maybe how much the Viking or excuse me, well, the Vikings and now the Browns. So in other words, Kevin Stefanski values a tight end that can do both, get you a girl that can do both. They can block a little bit is going to be a nice security blanket over the middle, a bigger target, kind of similar to maybe a less explosive, but a little bit better blocker. Mark Andrews, which Baker Mayfield had at Oklahoma. Uh, so it feels like Hooper is going to be a nice security blanket. And I think they're going to dial up those deep shots, man. I think we're going to see Baker's yards per attempt and intended air yards per attempt. In other words, how far down the field he is throwing the ball every time he throws it go up. Uh, Kirk Cousins was among the leaders last year with Stefanski and Baker Mayfield was one of the most deep, deep, accurate passers last year. And while the completion percentage might say otherwise and things like that, he threw catchable balls at a really high rate. And so there was drop off there. You got to put that on the receivers. But yeah, you mentioned Stephon Diggs. I see Odell Beckham in that role, running a lot of double moves, trying to get him in one-on-ones in space and uh, get him on those deep shots. And then Jarvis Landry going to be a workhorse in those short and intermediate areas as well. And of course, we're going to see some Kareem Hunt, man. We're going to see some Kareem Hunt. Chubb obviously does what Chubb does, makes guys miss, is very elusive. But Kareem Hunt is a flawless pass catcher, is a running back. Really, really, really strong. The Browns uh, extended him, showing some confidence in him after the situation that he put himself in back in Kansas City that led to him going to Cleveland. And this offense is scary. This offense is pretty scary, especially if they're able to implement these things early on. So the Ravens are going to have their work cut out for them. feels like talking about the Ravens' defensive side of the ball in translation. Uh, you mentioned those zone plays. Stefanski and Kubiak both are proponents of zone blocking schemes. That is where you don't have someone pull. You just kind of have the offensive line work one way as a unit. And that is going to really, really, really allow Nick Chubb to try and get uh, some some cutback lanes and things like that. I think Kareem Hunt might fit that a little bit better. I think Chubb is a little bit better on power concepts. They will still run some power. They won't run exclusively zone. But uh, if the Ravens are able to use Calais Campbell, who spoke about this this week, essentially saying teams like the Browns, and those outside run concepts, those stretch runs outside zone, are the reasons why Patrick Queen, myself, and Derek Wolf were brought in uh, to Baltimore. Clay Campbell hits a nail on the head. The Browns slaughtered the Ravens outside of the hashes in the run game last year in that week four matchup. That ended up with the Ravens having to retool the entire front, bring in Pecco, Ellis, Ward, you know, all those guys. So with Wolf, with Campbell, with Patrick Queen, who, if he's kept clean, Looks like he's put on a little bit of weight. He is going to, he is masterful when he is kept clean at mirroring running backs. He keeps his his lateral agility perfectly square to the running back, waits for the running back to make their move, is patient. At least it was at LSU. It's different in the NFL, of course, but was patient in waiting for the running back to really commit to a lane. And then that man runs a four or five, comes downhill, and is a madman with his hair on fire. So, uh, if he's kept clean by that Ravens defensive front, Brandon Williams returns to the nose so he can beat up on centers. That is his God-given talent is to just basically be a defensive center killer. Um, and then Campbell and Wolf will provide more mobility and some more smarts than guys like Pierce and Warmly, who weren't great, weren't outstanding. And then the rest of it's going to fall on those outside linebackers to really hold that edge and, and make sure that can't get sealed in. So if, if, Patrick Queen is kept clean. He's going to be making some plays this week. And Wink Martindale said he expects him to be targeted, as I mentioned earlier. So uh, that's going to be coming down to it feels like they're going to probably try to test Queen as well as Deshaun Elliott 
as Deshaun Elliott's taken over for Earl Thomas, and the Browns pretty much avoided throwing the ball over the middle of the field. And it feels like they might target Elliott a few times over the deep middle and intermediate middle, but on those boots and those rollouts and things that I'm expecting, uh, the ball is going to go outside the hash quite a bit to that uh, kind of outside and then out to that middle outside and then outside range. So I would expect some deep shots and one-on-ones feels like OBJ was really frustrated by Marlon Humphrey last year and OBJ was injured last year. And uh, they're going to want to test what this Raven secondary can hold up on those deep balls this year. So should be a very interesting battle chess wise between these two teams. And it's a system the Ravens are familiar with that kind of Kubiak system. So, you know, it's, it's uh, going to be fun to see how the Ravens, if the Ravens are able to win up front games over in my opinion, that's the key to the game here is Ravens being able to get penetration into the backfield on run plays and get pressure on Baker Mayfield. If they do that relatively uh, consistently, I feel like the Ravens run away with this one. Yeah, hashtag keep queen clean, and you're going to need to do that because Stefanski does play that poker game. He's doing a lot of that stretch and toss stuff to the outside, and uh, some of the Saints linebackers, like I was talking about in that game, like Anzalone, some of these guys just not really able to play the game uh, quite up to that standard. So I think if he does, then you're going to be right in that it shuts down a lot of the other stuff they're trying to do with the boot action and splitting the field in half for Baker. I think it's going to make it much more difficult on him. Uh, But yeah, man, I guess that's enough on their offense versus Baltimore's D. Let's switch over to the other side. So you got some familiar faces returning. Miles Garrett, fresh off of a uh, notorious suspension. Uh, He's going to be lining up there at that DN spot. Olivier Vernon coming back as well. Uh, other than that, they have had some losses. Grant Elpit was probably going to be starting from the, for them at safety. Uh, they made a quick move to re-solidify that spot by trading for Ronnie Harrison, uh, who was on the Jaguars, formerly and out of Alabama. So uh, it's kind of an interesting hodgepodge. Grady Williams is going to be at the mix at cornerback there. Denzel Ward probably still their top alpha dog. But how do you sort of, you know, take a look at this matchup? And who do you think sort of has the advantage here in Ravens offense versus the Browns D? I think the Browns have a really impressive defensive front. Talking Garrett, Richardson, Ogunjobi, and Vernon across their defensive front. Those guys are all gap penetrators. They're going to shoot one gap. Uh, They're going to try and get them upfield, make plays. Richardson can definitely two-gap in that situation. Ogunjobi a bit as well, but those guys are going to be a handful. But outside of that, I know that Mac Wilson is banged up. I'm not sure if he's going to play. Uh, Their linebacking core is very young, very inexperienced. They lose Joe Schobert, who played really well against Baltimore last year in Week 4. And then you mentioned that injury in the secondary to Greedy Williams, as well as uh, Grant Delpit. And they're being replaced. They essentially don't really have a free safety type guy, uh, which is going to be really difficult for them against the Ravens, in my opinion. That means they might have to rely on some more. If they don't, they're going to get burned. I don't think Sendejo and Carl Joseph and Ronnie Harrison are are really uh, center fielders, so to speak. So, I think they're going to have to go with a lot of too high coverage. And while they might disguise it and drop back into it, uh, the the Ravens will run the ball against too high and the linebackers aren't great. They're going to probably try to put extra hats to get some, some zone and some duo, uh, you know, double teams on wherever they're running, whether it's Garrett or Richardson or Ogunjobi or Vernon. Uh, Browns also do have Adrian Claiborne, who's an experienced veteran from Atlanta who was very good at one point in time. Uh, but Sion Takitaki could be a little bit of a surprise here. I really, really loved his tape in college. He is a classic, you know, Polynesian defender with his hair on fire in the, in the vein of Troy Palomalo. Dude plays like he is sped the hell up. Uh, you know, he can overcommit to things, but he's he's looking for those big hits and those crazy fast plays where he kind of plays faster than he can actually run. But I think that the Ravens will be able to take advantage of the Browns secondary a bit. Uh, Denzel Ward, I imagine, is going to, probably follow Hollywood around a bit, 
but that's going to leave some one-on-ones against some subpar corners in for Miles Boykin and for Sneed and maybe Devin Duvernay and some of those guys. So I think that the Ravens should be able to capitalize through the air unless this offensive line just can't handle the Browns pass rush of those four dudes. Browns blitz a bit, but not a ton. Uh, coming from San Francisco, I'm not entirely sure if their defensive coordinator is going to straight up try to replicate what the 49ers did last year. That's going to be a lot of four-man rushes, not a ton of blitzes, but obviously they'll blitz some. And then uh, a lot of cover three. And, you know, a lot of cover three and quarters kind of keeping the corners on one side of the field, not having them shadow. But with Denzel Ward being so much better to shadow than or to just in general as a cornerback than, you know, Terrence Mitchell and Kevin Johnson and some of these other guys that they have in the DB room. I think they're going to have to stick him on Hollywood. And if they don't stick him on Hollywood, I I think Hollywood's going to have 150 yards, two touchdowns again on week one. Feels like he's ready to go crazy. Uh, So I think that the game again, it's if the Ravens can cease the Browns defensive front from blowing the game up for them offensively. I think that the Ravens are going to put up 30 plus points. Uh, I think that, mm, I don't know. I don't know about this Ravens offensive line without Yonda. We still don't know who's starting at right guard. We, we don't even know who's starting. We, we basically only know at this point that Bradley Bozeman is starting somewhere that Ronnie Stanley is starting and that Orlando Brown is starting. Other than that, we do not know. Uh, Skura, who knows if he's ready to play or not, or if they're going to go with Macari or what the hell is going to go on. So if this game, if the Ravens struggle offensively in this game, it is going to be because the Browns defensive front just rips the Ravens offensive line apart. Uh, I don't think because of, because of Ronnie Stanley and Orlando Brown being as talented as they are, I don't think they'll get dominated, but if the Browns can kind of consistently win there, this game's going to be a lot closer than people predict, especially Ravens fans. So uh, like I said, though, it's going to boil down to, Lamar has time to throw the rock. It feels like this offense wants to prove how successful it can be as a passing offense, and they're going to try and rip. So it feels like the Ravens are going to put up at least 20 points. They're the only team in the NFL to score 500 points last year by and led the NFL in scoring by quite a margin. And that loss of Marshall Yonda is huge. It feels like they took enough shots at, at, at the interior positions to get some average to above average starting quality play there. So if that's the case, I think the Ravens are able to, you know, put up 27, 30, 30 plus points here. Well, the question is, could somebody like Aaron Rodgers do that? Because the defensive line, of course, including Sheldon Richardson, who uh, doesn't expect Lamar Jackson to turn into Aaron Rodgers anytime soon. I expect them to do what they do best, and that's run the ball. He's not wrong about that. They do like to run the ball, and that is what they do best. They just set the yards per carry and yards records. But as I put out on Twitter there, Aaron Rodgers did not throw the ball as well as Lamar Jackson last year. Uh, let's 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 bring Devonte Adams over to Baltimore and, and see what happens there. That would be uh, that would be my little happy thing. Let's see what. Uh, so the Ravens' leading receiver was a five foot nine, hundred and fifty some pound receiver with two screws in his foot. That's their leading wide receiver now. Their tight end who is their leading. So quite a drop off there in that in terms of that. The Packers do have a good offensive line as well with Bakhtiari. And a couple other studs there. So, I, I mean, maybe Lamar wasn't as good as what? What was it? 2011 Rodgers? Was that the year he won MVP? Yeah, and 14. The 2011 one, that insane one. I don't. Lamar definitely didn't throw the ball as well as that one did. But no, uh, I don't. Like, we don't have to. We don't have to break it down like comparison by comparison. It's just like, are we doing this again? Really? We're doing this again. We're doing this again. Like people are t- people are coming with the questions again. We're doing it again. That's just we're doing this again. Evidently, we're still here. We're still here. 
Oh, man, they really are. What is he going to have to do for this to stop? Win a playoff game, I guess, right? Yes. Win a playoff game. Okay. Then it stops. There's an, if he wins a playoff game this year, uh, what? He hasn't won a Super Bowl in his first three seasons? Okay. Cool. I don't care about that. That's that. It's just at this point, it's just good Lord. Uh, I, I don't think anyone who isn't just mouth regurgitated, just basically having diarrhea of the mouth. will look at what Lamar Jackson had the way he improved from Louisville into being a rookie into last year and think that he is not going to be an even better passer than he was last year after leading the NFL in touchdown passes his vision, his intangible vision as a quarterback, as kind of a point guard, is insane. He is a red zone monster, and he's going to shred. If he has time, he is going to shred. Even if he doesn't have time, he can make plays with his feet and still shred. He is a playmaker, plain and simple at this point. We all know it. There are just non-believers still, and that's okay. I mean, every single good player has detractors. There, you know, There's people who don't think Michael Jordan... Or, you know, people just called Tom Brady a system quarterback and, you know, Peyton Manning didn't have, didn't win enough in the play, whatever it is. There's just people who don't like certain players for whatever reason and they want to be right and it's confirmation bias, all that shit. And, uh, yeah, if you, if you want to look at the other starting quarterbacks in the NFL and then pick on Lamar Jackson, I don't know what you think about fucking Sam Darnold and Jared Goff then. I don't know what, I don't know, Shout I don't out know to, what you have to say about that. Shout out to our guy Orlovsky. Shout out to our guy Orlovsky. I don't I don't know what you have to say about them. So yeah. yeah. And that's know. not it's, it's, it's not to and listen, I'm not trying to belabor the point. I'm not even really trying to go after Richardson. I don't totally think he was trying to take a shot at Lamar or anything. It's just it ignites these Twitter debates that my timeline just gets absolutely consumed by. And it's like, why do we have to do this? Like, can we just all Relax a little bit, you know? It's week one. Football's back. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. Can we just try to enjoy something for once? Come on, Sheldon. It's it's just belabored at this point. Uh, also breaking out of the beat journalist, Zrebeck and Aaron Kassinitz, Tyree Phillips was not practicing today. So Fluker potentially uh, going to be seeing DJ Fluker then at right guard, it sounds like. Okay, so DJ Fluker probably at right guard. We just gave you our breakdown of how the offense stacks up against Cleveland's D. Anything else on this matchup before we get out of here? Hollywood Brown, big day, especially if Denzel Ward doesn't shadow him. Okay, I like that. And your score prediction? Score prediction, I'm going to go 27 to 20 Ravens. I think that uh, Brown's hit a couple big plays, and you know Ravens probably have some kinks to work out defensively. And other than that, it feels like the offense will probably hum. The continuity is going to overmatch the Browns, bringing in an entirely new coaching staff. And coaching is so ever important and having players all on the same page. So uh, let's see what happens, but I'm going 27-20 Ravens. Ravens 30, Browns 24, J.K. Dobbins scores a touchdown. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. I'm going to go Hollywood Brown over 100 and a touchdown. Oh, I like that. Okay, well, that was pretty extensive. Anything else you want to add in? Uh, let's see in the comments, nothing crazy. Aaron Askew asks, would you sacrifice the Browns game to win the chiefs game? Yes. I really want the Ravens to beat the, beat the chiefs. That would be great for business. And if they wind up at two and one by that point, I would say yes. Like if they beat the Texans as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be one and two, but 
the final thing, we're doing a $50 Venmo Cash App giveaway. If you send on Twitter or on Instagram, take a screenshot showing that you are subscribed on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, whether it's Apple or Spotify or whatever the hell it is, uh, send a screenshot and then drop your Ravens Browns score prediction, including who the winner is in a Twitter thread that I've created. You can find it pinned to my Twitter account as well as on the Baltimore Beatdown Instagram. And if you correctly pick the score and are subscribed to this podcast and show me proof, you could win $50. There will only be one winner most likely unless I hit big on a couple bets and I'm feeling a little generous this Sunday, but there will be at least one winner if you correctly predict that score and uh, show us your subscribe. So if you guys want to get in the chance to win some free money by taking five seconds of your time, go for it. All right. Last couple questions before we get out of here. It looks like we already answered most of Matt Magdens and uh, last one is from Clay. Fun little game here. Who gets the first sack interception and forced fumble of the season? He says Queen, Peters, and Campbell. Uh, first sack, I'm going to go Campbell. First interception, I'm going to go Chuck Clark. First forced fumble, I'm going to go Derek Wolf. First sack, let's say Tyus Bowser, my boy. First forced fumble, I'm going to go with Chuck Clark. First interception, let's say, uh, let's go Marlowe. Let's go Marlowe. I think Marlowe is ready to make plays on the ball. He's done everything but be like a ball hawk. So let's see him uh, Let's see him get an early interception. Actually, scratch that, Tavon Young. Tavon Young's going to rob somebody over the middle of the field. I love it. All right, anything else before we get out of here? Now let's get out of here. Week one is here, baby, and we are very excited. If you enjoyed the show, you can follow us on social. Twitter is at Podcast Beatdown. You can follow me at Jake Luke. You can follow Spencer at Ravens for Dummies. Instagram, you can follow us, Baltimore underscore Beatdown. Uh, we're going to be probably getting back to posting mailbags at some point here, uh, especially as we get back into the previews and uh, reviews of the game. Uh, really appreciate you guys listening in uh, and commenting along with us here. Uh, a little bit longer of an episode as we are getting ready to gear up for week one and going to try to get back to that uh, two-episode-a-week format here. Going to have a review posted for you hopefully on Monday morning uh, after the Ravens uh, smack the shit out of the Browns uh, in Baltimore on Sunday. So really appreciate everyone tuning in, and we will talk to you then. Peace. All right, thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys. See you later. All right, God bless. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs>